Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thanks for joining us again for another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. And today, Father Macias and I are going to pose the question, is it wrong, is it unbiblical for Christians to be confrontational? So I'm going to turn this over to you and maybe ask you to define what confrontation means and maybe what it has come to mean. Well, typically we think of confrontation as a negative thing. This is what causes church splits. This is what causes families to not celebrate Thanksgiving together. This is what celebrates mom and dad from their kids after they go to college. This is what separates neighbors uh, who seem to confront each other about their politics or even about how high their fence should be. And in our modern 2020 American culture, confrontation is largely seen as a bad thing. In fact, most people think confrontation, allowing an opposing view to be discussed among two people, no matter if they're friend or foe, uh, is against the Christian ethos, that Christians are called to be nice, called to be kind, called to be forgiving, friendly, and that confrontation would therefore not be in the realm of Christian behavior. But I would like to posit this morning and for our listeners here that confrontation is merely the opposite of compromise. So there are two reactions when you have a difference of opinion. You can either confront them. You say, you don't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, I'm going to confront that opinion and saying, he is Lord because he rose from the dead and the scriptures declare it to be so. The opposite reaction, and there's only two here, is to compromise. Say, well, you might not believe Jesus is Lord, but I do. So let's find some middle ground where we can agree. Now for the Christian, the call and obligation of the gospel is therefore to be confrontational about truth, not compromise on things that matter. I think what happens to people when they don't get this distinction that confrontation does not have to have a negative connotation is that the alternative becomes practiced hypocrisy. So for example, in that scenario you just gave, I don't believe Jesus is Lord. Well, I do. And now that's the discussion as opposed to, well, I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, fine. Let's find out what we can agree on. Basically, if you do believe that Jesus is Lord and you're not willing to confront that disagreement head on, not in an unkind way, but head on, you're sort of practicing how to be a hypocrite. And after a while, you lose touch of who you are and so you don't have much to even offer by way of fulfilling the Great Commission. And I think that what Christians are facing today when we turn on CNN or Fox News or open the local newspaper or read uh, any national tabloid is we see confrontation. There's a battle for uh, state office, federal office. Uh, there's a battle for how we should raise our children, how we should lead our families. And the call throughout Christendom ought to be, we should do it according to what the scripture has commanded us to do. But instead, the dialogue gets brought down to, 
let's find middle ground. Let's find places of compromise. Let's find, find places where everybody can agree, where we can find that magic word consensus. And I'm going to argue this morning that, that that's actually not what Christ calls us to do. But that, in fact, these buzzwords, consensus, compromise, meeting people halfway, those things are actually unloving, unchristian, and those very ideas are used by the enemy, uh, humanists and those who want to see the kingdom of God fail, to gradually eat away at the progress that Christ's kingdom is making on earth today. And when you think about it, Jesus was very confrontational. If you... Um, and the most glaring one might be how he, um, you know, overturned the tables in the temple because they had taken God's house and turned it into a marketplace. And yet, how many people today would have looked at that reaction and said, you know, he went a little overboard there? Or how about on a one-to-one when he's standing in front of Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate basically is is posing the position that says, you know, if you just kind of do things my way, maybe we can work things out here. And Jesus stands up and says, you know what? The only reason you have power is because God gave it to you. I mean, that's confrontation on a one-on-one, don't you think? That's right. And I think that Jesus's strength as, as a revolutionary in one sense is that his confrontation, not just because the truth was behind him, not just because he was God in the flesh, but the very act of confrontation allowed Christ to frame every issue. So much that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Roman government, the apostate Jews, uh, the tax collector, every conflict that Jesus comes into, he's the one setting the narrative. In fact, the parables themselves are Jesus provoking conflict or his responses to the trap set by Pharisees. Jesus provokes conflict, pointing out the hypocrisy because Jesus refuses to allow those who are misled, he calls them blind, to set the parameters of how he's going to operate in his kingdom. Instead, he starts from the very beginning saying that the kingdom of God is at hand and redefines the terms on which all of the Jews and all of the Romans are to understand reality through conflict. And I also think that the reason that too few are willing to be confrontational is because they're not certain of their position. So if you do not have a world and life view that includes every area of life and thought is governed by the law of God, When you face a situation and you feel, well, I don't really know how I should think about this. Well, the person who understands the law of God, it's not that he doesn't have to have any reflection on this on a particular subject. It's that he has the foundation on which to come to a good conclusion. And so I think a lot of times people try to take this middle ground because they haven't prepared themselves for the battle that they're in, and some don't even recognize there is a battle. And not only do they not recognize that there is a battle, they don't recognize that the tactics that they are refusing to acknowledge, that they're not just losing the battle, but they're actually becoming the means by which the other side is winning. Uh, One of our friends and a man who is very involved in politics in California, and I believe we've probably mentioned him mentioned him on this podcast before, is Senator H.L. Richardson, who was 
one of those few California conservatives who had hope for the Golden State uh, and was very successful. He was one of the, the founders of Gunners of California, and he wrote a book called Confrontational Politics. And in there, he outlines uh, really what the Christian response to the religion of his day applied to the Christian response to politics in a place where we seem to be at a disadvantage and how in places where you think you're at a disadvantage, the best thing you can do to preserve whatever strength you have and to actually move the kingdom forward is to go onto their turf and be confrontational. In fact, he makes the course that this is the tactic used by Marxists or leftists or liberals throughout all of political history. In fact, he uses this illustration uh, from Lenin, and he says that the tactic for political resistance is through confrontation, and he describes it in terms of a hammer. And he says that the, the Lenin would say, you take your issue and you're like the hammer and you put it down on top of the nail. You do your first strike. Well, that doesn't put the nail in all the way. But just as important is the compromise of coming back just a little bit. And so you then gain momentum of putting the second hammer and putting the nail all the way in. Well, this is really what we see uh, in the confrontation that the left does. They'll say something crazy, like 20 years ago when they were talking about, well, homosexual marriage, it should be tolerated in forms of civil unions, or at least recognized in the tax code. You know, they were do, using confrontation to push the issue all the way down to the five-yard line and then gradually bring it back. They had president candidates like Clinton and, and Obama who said, you know, marriage is between a traditional man and woman. That was them pulling the hammer back just a little bit. And then once they got into power, the hammer comes straight back down and DOMA is repealed and Obama goes out and makes all of these strides for progress in homosexual marriage because their confrontation allowed them to control the issue even when the majority of Americans in 2008 were against homosexual marriage. Yet the Supreme Court and all of those in power used the tactic of confrontation to take over public opinion and political power. Now, it's interesting that you say that because I can almost hear people saying, well, are you suggesting we need to use Marxist tactics Aren't we above that? For example, don't we have to treat other people well because that's what Jesus said we need to do, treat others the way you want to be treated? So are you advocating, which I don't think you are, and I know you're not, the idea that we just use the tactics of the enemies of God? Well, I don't think we're advocating that we should go read Lenin and do what he does or be dishonest or, or be belligerent or be unloving, but rather that what's working in these Marxist systems, this, this ideology of conflict, works because it responds to the human nature that their own system does not believe in. So why can we be manipulated this way? Because the Marxists are operating based on a view of humanity that is basically depraved and they'll do everything in their own self-interest. Yet Marxist philosophy doesn't really believe that. Only the Christians believe in the depravity of human nature and our proclivity to sin and uh, these ideas that really come from the Protestant Reformation. And yet the leftists operate more consistently in the God-ordained universe here in the realm of politics than the Christians do. 
Instead, the Christians want to behave as though all men are angels. They want to behave as though everybody will do what is right. And we know that's not true in our churches. That's not true in our families. That's not true in our, church, in our uh, uh, politics, state houses. In fact, to be consistently Calvinist or consistently Reformed is to recognize that the, the tea and, to and tulip applies to every realm of human existence, that we should expect that people will be on their worst behavior, whether they're the president, which is probably not hard for a lot of people to believe <laughs> these days, or <laughs> if they're the dog catcher. And so if we accept what John Calvin teaches about human nature, then we should be expecting that those who assume power will misuse it. So our tactics when we go into the realm should not be to assume the best in the minds of those who are working against Christ's kingdom, but rather to recognize as they do that we have a goal and the difference is our goal is to honor God, to glorify him forever and to see his people flourish under his blessings. Exactly. And you touched on something there. You said what people believe on either side. And so presuppositions matter. It matters whether you think all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all need a savior, and that's the crux of it, or you believe that revolution and chaos brings about something better. So not only are we dealing with presuppositions, we're really in the realm of eschatology because how do you think it ends? And what do you think your part is in terms of this thing called the kingdom of God? And so I think what you're saying in terms of that hammer analogy is that what happens is the hammer comes down and the nail is hit. And everybody's like, oh my goodness, we have to do something about it. Now the hammer goes back, preparing to hit again. And the people who just want to be left alone and don't realize that there's a war going on says, okay, things are better now. And they back off. So that now when the hammer comes down again, now it hurts even more because you didn't see that that retreat was, was really preparing for an advance. And so what H.L. Richardson says in this book, Confrontational Politics, which it, even though H.L. Richardson has passed away, gone to his reward. His book is still available, and I've been recommending it to people. What he's saying is when that hammer goes back, understand the strategy and the tactic, and don't make that a time to go back. Make it a time to advance, holding your position that what is right is right, and what is not right is not right. Right, and the other illustration that he uses about confrontation and progress uh, is the one about the, the bandit who tries to rob you. Right? So a bandit comes, he sticks a gun in your ribs, and he says, give me your wallet. And so you, fearing for your life, hand the wallet over to the robber, to the bandit. And then in the illustration, the bandit says, well, I see that you have your credit cards in here. I don't want you to have to have to reapply for these and have to get these new from the bank. I'll give you your credit cards back. And well, you have some pictures here of your children and your wife. I'm going to give you your pictures of your, of your wallet and your uh, pictures from your wallet of your wife and your children back, but I'm going to keep the cash. Do you go then to the, to the police station and report this and say, well, he was a, he was a pretty nice guy. He let me keep my credit cards and he let me keep my pictures of my family, but he took my wallet and all of my money. But that's really the picture of what political compromise is. It's, 
this idea of giving way to the other side. But how many Christians behave this way? We say, you know, we're really glad that you started coming to our church, but we're not going to tell you to behave a certain way. We're not going to expect that you're here every week. We're not going to expect that you tithe. We're not going to expect that you change your family or your business or your job or be honest, right? This idea of compromise is really poisonous and it's not helpful and it doesn't get you to where you want to be. The same thing happens in politics. You know, we respond to the humanism introduced into our life through politics and often we compromise to avoid conflict, we avoid the confrontation. We want to get along with people. But yet where we find ourselves is imbibing all of the poison piece by piece, step by step from the other side. And it's no surprise. Here we are in early part of September 2020. And in our state, we have churches still pretty much on lockdown, schools having to kowtow to all sorts of permissions from a, uh, a governmental structure that's really not even in favor of anything other than statist education. And people become concerned that if they don't go along, if they don't appease, if they, like if we really resist, like John MacArthur's church in Southern California or a, a Baptist church here in our area saying, no, we're going to continue to, to have our services, People are afraid that if they rock the boat, they lose. But they don't understand that there is no appeasing evil. Well, there is no appeasing evil. And uh, as Christ describes, that evil only retreats when confronted with good. You know, there's this myth, this idea that if we were just nice enough to the unbeliever, then we would win them over. But the reality is that your niceness is perceived by the enemy as room for them to advance. And so the only way to hold the line of Christendom is for you to also be confrontational. There is in the scripture this picture of the kingdom of God as something growing to cover the world. But before Christ introduced that and made it a promise in the New Testament, he also gave that promise to Adam the dominion of Adam and cover all of the garden and expand from the garden to cover the entire world. When Adam failed, he gave that promise to Noah. And he said to Noah, this new world is yours. Take dominion, be fruitful, multiply. There was this idea that Noah and Adam were going to confront the wilderness and that through this confrontation, the wilderness would be subdued and it would all come into conformity. And that's what dominion would look like. But then when we get to Abraham and throughout the promises given to him and his sons, there is a picture even more clear given of a land. Uh, the promise given to Abraham is that this land would not just be Israel, not just be this little piece in the Middle East, but also cover all of his descendants, all of his seed. And they'd be as, as numerous as the sand in the sea or sand on the beach and stars in the sky. The idea is that through confrontation, the kingdom would expand. And the confrontation for Abraham was literal fight, battle, uh, a both semantic of who is your God and also physical and bloody of where shall you serve and who shall you marry? So confrontation was not just getting along with people, but rather having all people come under the kingdom and the reign of God. And when you think about 
biblical history in times of appeasement, in times of syncretism, well, we'll just adopt a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but we're still going to be who we are. That's usually when subjugation, being brought into captivity happen. And God's very jealous of people who are his and who don't follow his law and give their allegiance and love to someone else. And that's why the term adultery is used oftentimes to, to categorize that. And I do believe today the church is feeling the effects of its adultery and praise God that there are some who are really beginning to see what the issues are, that it's much more than a political issue of which party is in power but it's the fact that maybe, just maybe, the, the real target of all this unrest is the Church of Jesus Christ dominating the world for the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. And so I don't think too many people take seriously the admonition in Judges that talks about every place your foot trods is yours. Not yours for personal use, not yours so that you can build up a big stash for your family, yours in terms of being representatives as being God's people. That's right. And those promises given throughout the Bible, so you see it in Judges, Joshua, Deuteronomy, when God's people are challenged, challenged by those who want to see the promises of God die, God's promise they give God's promise that he gives them is that literal promise. Every place. And that doesn't mean in the church. It doesn't mean in the kingdom of the spiritual. It's, it's literally every place. Your home, the marketplace, the political sphere. There is not a single place where the sole of your foot will tread um, that does not belong to the kingdom of God. And so there's an important little delineation there where what does the sole of the foot have to do with possession or authority? It's because that is calling back to a confrontational Bible verse at the beginning of the book of Genesis, where the seed of the woman is promised to crush Satan under his what? Under his foot, under his heel. Again, restated in the New Testament by St. Paul that the foot the feet will conquer the Satan. And so I think what we're missing is the only way we can expect to have safety, protection, a future, a Christian identity is if we are active moving forward. A foot that is stuck to the ground, stagnant, not moving, cannot set foot on new territory, and it cannot be lifted up to crush the serpent if it's standing still. So by definition, Confrontation is required of the Christian if he really wants to see the kingdom of God prevail. And like H.L. Richardson says in his book, in terms of politics, because he was someone who embraced uh, Chalcedon's theology, he was a friend of Dr. Rush Dooney. Dr. Rush Dooney, whenever he would talk about him, had such delight on his face because he knew this was someone who was bringing the ideas of Christian reconstruction into politics but that you don't abandon who we are as Christians to do it. So that's why at the beginning I said, lest anybody thinks, oh, I see, we become like the Marxists, and if we do what the Marxists do, we'll prevail. No, really what the Marxists are doing are capitalizing on the fact that 
ignorant people can be swayed. But just as what's true is if you know that as a child of God, as a soldier for Christ, you have a duty and a responsibility that transcends your own life. I mean, here in California, I'm, I'm sure it's true in other places, but there's such a fear over this COVID pandemic as if nobody ever died before. And I always find it odd that there are Christians who are so afraid of the potential of death. Did they not know that they were going to die? <laughs> I mean, you can't, I mean, I can understand if you're a child and you never think about death, but the fact is it's all around us. So rather than confronting those who would oppose the advancement of the kingdoms, instead of getting strength from the fact that, yes, indeed, we will not die a second death, but we will die a physical death, why not make the courageous thing of saying, if God before us, who can be against us, as opposed to, I'm afraid the bad guys will get us? Yes. Well, and I think it's important that you, you talk about uh, the fear of the bad guys. And there, I think that there is a residual idea that somehow Marxism might be successful, that um, our greatest fear is that the Marxists might get in power. Well, the reality is, as a Christian, is that whether or not the Marxists get in power this year or for the next decade or not, their philosophy is going to lose. Uh, one of the favorite quotes I like to point out is a Churchill quote where he says that the future is unknowable, but the past should give us hope. Because as much as we like to talk about the, the specter of Marxism or the, the danger of Marxism coming into our, our life and our politics, everywhere where Marxist philosophy, whether it's Russia or Cuba, or Venezuela, everywhere that it's been realized, it's failed. And so what we should continually recognize that there is no power in this system of redistribution. We have no fear that somehow they're going to overcome the kingdom of God because while it may be difficult to live through it and there could be atrocities as there always are of death of liberty and individuals of children of starvation of economic downturn, while those things always come with Marxism, Nobody ever comes out of Marxism saying, what a wonderful free system. It always and inevitably fails. And what's really, I think, remarkable and powerful to think about is that from the time that Marx wrote his manifesto uh, for the next you know, several uh, decades, nobody wanted to take up his mantle. Everybody recognized that this was an impossibility. It was a a quackery, as Richardson calls it. But when Lenin takes up Marx's ideology, what was the power then behind Lenin? What made it so that he could amass such political acumen, uh, have so much power, ha have so much authority? It wasn't based on the ideology. It was that Lenin recognized that if he put a little bit of organization behind a philosophy that a tiny minority who were committed to that philosophy could wreak great havoc and have power. And so Lenin's great power was not that the philosophy of Marxism. Lenin's great power was that he recognized that if he had a clarion call, if he had a dedicated minority, 
that it didn't really matter what they believed as long as they just followed him into the goal that he was leading them to. Don't you think that too few people have a goal in mind when it comes to their life in Christ and the kingdom of God? It, it reminds me, you know, my daughters were competitive junior golfers. So I spent a lot of time on golf courses, sitting through golf instruction. And it was funny how many times I could see parallels. You know, sometimes a sport is a good microcosm of life. And you can learn something just by being in the midst of it. I know people say that about football and baseball and you know other things. But I, for me, not having been a golfer myself, I got to observe it. And one of the interesting phenomenon is that everybody knows that what you're supposed to shoot for in golf is par. Par is the standard. If you can shoot par, you're doing what a good golfer can do. And so, of course, everybody starts off in this sport not being a par golfer, but they shoot for that. And one of the things that happens to people is if they say, well, you know, if I could only shoot par, that would be great. And then what happens is they achieve what they thought they could never achieve. And now suddenly there's a crisis. Their crisis comes because they don't have another goal. And they never really believed they could reach this goal. And now suddenly they don't start playing as well and they go back to having inferior scores. Well, somebody who has a sense of vision and purpose, the desired end, there's always a little bit more, a little bit better. And because we really have gone away from the church being a boot camp for conquering the world in Jesus' name, people then start having lesser and lesser goals. And God forbid they get one of those goals that their guy wins or the, the, the policy that they wanted to see happen in their local level happens, that they sit back and they go, oh gosh, we did that. I just don't think we could ever do it again. And I think that's what happens when the enemies of God do their strategic retreat and it looks like, oh, well, we gained a victory. So they, they go back like, well, that'll never happen again. And they don't recognize that with the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, there's no telling what this world could look like. Right. When I think the, the greatest enemy of the kingdom is not that the Marxists or the humanists or the liberals or whoever the God haters might be, that they might overpower us. The greatest enemy is the number of Christians who are pessimistic about the power of the gospel in this world. Uh, the great majority of American Christians are just waiting for this world to get worse, waiting for this world to be raptured out of its place. And so they use it as an excuse for their complacency. You've heard the idiom, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? But the promise of the gospel is that not is not that we will be rescued, but rather that we are the rescuers. We are rescuing not only ourselves and our families from the consequences of sin, but also rescuing the entire world uh, as those going into a, a, a building on fire, but also rebuilding where that structure has been damaged. And the result of Christendom on this world will be a better world. So that, why even give the premise any validity that the ship is sinking? The ship is not sinking. 
Jesus promised that that mustard seed would grow into an enormous tree. And regardless of what people think today, if you look back 150 years ago, there has been progress in life expectancy, people's illnesses, finding remedies, or at least ways to hold off um, bad, you know, the effects of symptoms. And so it all depends on the glasses you put on. And unfortunately, if you don't get the full scripture and you only get what some people want to do is give you the happy news and what other people want to do is give you the terrible news, that's not the gospel. The gospel is good news. And the good news isn't that we have comfy lives. The good news is that Jesus Christ's rule and reign expands and more people come to understand their sin, their need for repentance, and then to become soldiers in this army to advance. Yes. Well, and one of the, the great quotes that Richardson brings uh, is from President Roosevelt. And he talks about how so many Christians are afraid of being confrontational because they're afraid of losing, losing individual battles. Maybe we'll go to confront that, that belligerent neighbor or the liberal family member, and maybe we get taken to task. Or maybe we, we try to get somebody elected or try to bring doctrinal purity to our church, and maybe we lose. And so that fear of losing really prevents Christians from even trying. So he has this, this quote from Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. He says, Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. And of course, them thinking that they have not been defeated is a defeat in and of itself because ground has been lost and they didn't even see it go away. Yes. Well, and I think what most people really miss and why they are so pessimistic is they think that Rush Juni is wrong. They think the idea that history is changed by small, dedicated minorities is not real. But the reality is that in America, in the year 2020, the future of our nation is decided by a small, active group of people. And Richardson, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was saying that this number was fewer than 5% of all of the population are politically active. So whether you're the 5% of the liberal or the 5% of the conservatives, the majority of people are on the sidelines, not actively participating in politics. And so that allows your one vote to carry a lot more weight if you're politically active. Same thing in your church. If you go to a church of 100 people, 100 people aren't the people setting up the chairs and putting together the sermon and putting together the, the Lord's table and cleaning up the church afterwards and doing the Bible studies. There's a few people who do most of the work. That's true in every organization and institution. Most people refuse to go into the middle of the arena. Most people stand by the sidelines and go wherever the leaders have them go. And the left and the liberals and the humanists have taken advantage of that. And, using com and have used confrontation to drive their agenda. Meanwhile, the Christians who want to be polite and kind and courteous have allowed the wagon to be taken out from them and 
confrontation has allowed compromise to enter in all of these or areas of life. And that's where it's so important to frame issues biblically as opposed to the latest fad. You know, it's a, it's a big deal nowadays, anti-bullying, people shouldn't be bullied. And first of all, I'm not sure bullying is a concept that we would clearly point to in scripture. What it usually means in modern parlance is don't stand up for what you believe because then I can always call you a bully. So there are many buzzwords nowadays that all you have to do is hurl at someone and that everybody thinks would be enough to stop you. So think of all the phobias that can be thrown your way. Well, what happens to the person who is really standing on the rock? Let them throw these things at you. Okay. Yeah, okay, I, I would expect you to be throwing these at me. But what they don't always expect is that you'll continue to stand. And I think that's what the net benefit of a good Christian education, no matter how old you are, is to know you are standing on the rock of Jesus Christ. And if you do things God's way, you will be blessed. And don't be overly concerned with how comfortable your life is, because that was never the promise in the first place. Yes. And... If we move forward as a, as a Christian community right now, uh, and we stand on the promises, I think right now in times of crisis, we're able to point back to 2,000 years of success as a church. We're able to say through the plague, through the crusades, through Muslim inquisition, through all of these various trials of the church, the, Christ, the Church of Christ has stood. It's been unmoved and un, untainted by the world because what's behind it is not something from human creation. What stands behind Christ's kingdom on earth is Christ himself. The resurrection and the ascension demonstrate that this is not mere political minutia. The family is not just the arbitrary rule of one father. The church is not the arbitrary collection of people who have a, a good perspective on the Bible, but rather these are institutions upheld, sustained, and moved forward by the providence of God. And if we really believe that, why wouldn't we confront the dark deeds of evil, the hypocrisy of the world, the lies from the pit, and say, that's not true, that's the way of death, and the only way out of it is to trust in the Lord. Yes. And I'm going to do a, a little plug here. Calcedon has two publications, the Calcedon Report and something called Arise and Build. And the most recent issue of Arise and Build has an article in it by yours truly. And I entitled it Living in the Crosshairs. You know, throughout biblical history, the people of God have been in the crosshairs of the enemy. Crosshairs is when somebody has a sight, you know, there's the perpendicular lines and they get you lined up and they're going to shoot at you. So rather than being surprised that people shoot at us, there is a fearlessness that comes from doing the right thing. And in this article, I point out that there are a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s and 40s, so you understand, when you're my age, people in their 40s still count as young people, right? And what they're doing is they are going after those who dare to do that which God says is an abomination. 
And so they're taking on the abortion industry. They're taking on child pornography and sex trafficking. They're taking on revealing what goes on under the covers of political liberalism and what it actually produces. And I submit that you cannot be fearless unless you truly fear God. If you don't fear God, then you're likely to fear man. But if you fear God, then you can confront those who dare to dishonor God. Just the same way young David had his slingshot and took down the giant that everybody else was really afraid of. Now, I don't know how David felt. Maybe he was a little afraid himself, but you know what? He walked by faith, not by sight, and that guy went down. I think the overwhelming part of those who even confess that the Lord is sovereign or who have an optimistic view of the future, I think the overwhelming part is there are so many different things attacking the church and the family and the state. You know, we have the negative stuff coming in through the television, through the internet, through social media. We have it coming down in legislation. It's in the newspaper. Uh, it's on the billboards. Everywhere we look, it seems as though there are new attacks on our Christian identity. But I want you to, and again, this borrows from, from Richardson's book, I want you to imagine that you have a, a house at the bottom of a hill and you see a, a giant snowball starting to move its way down the hill, gaining momentum, gaining size, rolling down towards your house. Well, what do you do? Well, maybe you go out between you and this giant snowball and you start to build a barricade. But as soon as you start to protect your house, you notice a second snowball is coming. Well, then what do you do? You build a, a second barricade. Um, eventually, you'll get to a point where you recognize that you're not enough to protect that house. And so perhaps you gather your neighbors and you go up to the top of the hill and you find out who is this malevolent person pushing snowballs down the hill at the farmhouse. Or maybe you start running a newspaper and you, you talk about how terrible it is to push snowballs down the hill. But we can't simply continue to respond to the enemy's attacks. We must go to the root of the problem and confront where the danger is coming from. If we want the onslaught to stop, we must go and take out the person at the top of the hill. That means that we must be confront confrontational. I'm glad you said take out the person at the top of the hill. Don't take that to mean that you go and obliterate them with a firearm. The last part, or one of the last points in the piece that I did, is that when you go to confront the enemies of God, oftentimes those enemies, not unlike Saul, became Paul. And other people, I know even within Reconstructionist circles, there's far too many who started off as Marxist communists on their college campuses, and someone cared enough to help them see that this wasn't compatible with how God had created man to be. And so don't take the position that says this enemy just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Remember, the weapons of our warfare include the word of God. And trust me, if the enemies of God didn't appreciate how important the Bible is in conversion, they never would have banned it from public schools. They never would be attacking churches and saying you can't open. What are they so afraid of? Well, I'll tell you what they're afraid of, that this is life-changing stuff and they don't want anyone near it.
That's right. And that's the source of our authority, source of our power. And it's the organizing principle under which we move forward our mission. You know, one of the, the great difficulties of being a conservative versus being a liberal is that the liberal understands he's part of a, a movement. And there are many different issues and coalitions of people who don't always see eye to eye. The environmentalists don't always agree with the LGBT people who don't always agree with the you know, people from the NEA and the education lobby or don't always agree with the union people who do fire and police. They don't all have the same politics and the same religion and the same philosophy, but they're organized under this centralized policy of uh, new Marxism. Whereas on the conservative side, we all seem to have our own siloed issues. We want to come up with any reason not to work together. You know, my issue is pro-life. And if you don't do pro-life the way I do it, then to heck with you. And, or my issue is the death penalty. And if you have any difference of opinion, we're not going to work together. The real umbrella for the conservative must be the cause and kingdom of Christ and recognizing that there will be people along the path who are not quite as reconstruction. <laughs> so not quite as deep into reconstruction as you are, not quite as reformed as you are, but rather our goal is to bring and organize these people under the common banner of Christ and his kingdom against the humanist banner and not allow our cause or, or desire for perfection to get in the way of our need for dominion. And that's why it's so important for people not to fail to meet with the brethren, because that's where the strength comes. As we worship God together as a congregation, and part of that worship is not just singing songs and reciting prayers, it's having this unified declaration that we want on earth what exists in heaven. And when we do that, we refresh ourselves. I know full well that there are many people who are hearing us and they can feel punched this side and that side. They want to advance Christ's kingdom, but they run into this opposition. And yeah, they sort of expected the arrows coming from the front, but they never really expected the arrows coming from the back. Well, let me tell you, if you do not know the history of R.J. Rushduni and how Chalcedon started 55 years ago, that's exactly what he experienced. And if there's anything you can say about Dr. Rushduni, it's that he had his eyes fixed on Jesus because you know what? Lots of things could have taken him out. Lots of things could have made him just say, what's the point of all this? But as I like to tell my husband, anytime I feel that my labors for the Lord are in vain and I'm thinking like, why bother? It's as if God says to me, now you're listening to you as opposed to listening to me. And I get that, you know, correction that says, so what that it's hard? Does anybody think that when Jesus carried his cross to Calvary, it was easy? When he was being flogged, when he was being reproved, when he had people who professed to be his friends all leave? You know, he experienced that just like we experience these things. But we are more than conquerors. And if, if you think about what that means, you better believe it, because if you don't believe it, then you're operating off the wrong strategy. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Amen. In Jesus Christ. And so apart from him, what are we? We're nothing. <laughs> right. no blessings, all curses. But with him, 
we can do all things. So there is a, a great encouragement, a great power there. Uh, there is no reason to fear what's happening in the year 2020, but rather when we move forward, understanding that under his care, under his banner, under his strength, under his wings, uh, there is no place where defeat is even possible because every place where your foot trots becomes the Lord's. Very good. Well, just to repeat, Confrontational Politics by H.L. Richardson. And then I would draw your attention back to God's Plan for Victory, uh, that monograph that Chalcedon sells. Um, it goes through the importance of how you believe this conflict is resolved. And I think that it's important for every now and then, even those of us who say, yeah, yeah, I read that book a while ago, <laughs> pick it up and read it again. It won't take that long. And you'll refresh in your mind the goal and the aspirations you felt when you understood this originally, and you'll be renewed to keep going. Steve, any other recommendations you have? Well, of course, uh, Richardson wrote a couple of other books. Uh, one of them that's important is What Makes You Think We Read the Bills. Um, and then Dr. North wrote a book called Government by Emergency, which he talks about how we don't need to fear that the left is going to take over because as soon as they come into power, they're going to squander it and ruin it. So our call is to stay consistent with our principles and hold out until the Lord gives us the victory. That's exactly right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Join us again next time for another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.